Hello, and welcome to Episode 7 of Inside the Nudge Unit, the podcast from the Behavioural Insights team. BIT was set up in 2010 by the UK government as the world's first nudge unit. We work around the world with public and private sector partners to apply the latest insights from behavioural science. And our aim is to inform policy, improve public services, and deliver positive results for people and communities. I'm Liz Costa. And I'm Ashton Coakley. And we're your hosts for this episode of Inside the Nudge Unit. In this episode, we are taking a look at two quite different projects, but both demonstrate the approach that BIT takes, and we think they both deliver some really interesting and positive results. Later, we'll be speaking to our colleagues Laura and Violette from our Paris office to talk about their work on a repairability index for consumer electronics such as laptops, tablets and phones. But first, we'll turn to a discussion we had with colleagues in BIT North America about their ongoing work with mayors across the US to help with their COVID vaccination programs. We're recording this in the UK in June 2021. The COVID vaccination program here has been going very smoothly and well over half the adult population have now received at least one dose. And the picture in the US is quite similar with over 40% of the adult population fully vaccinated. But earlier this year, it wasn't clear how willing people would be to get vaccinated, nor the public health impact of the vaccination program itself. And despite the encouraging progress, there's still a way to go to get as many people as possible vaccinated in the US, the UK, and all around the world. So here at BIT, we think behavioral science can play a really important role in boosting vaccine uptake. And it's a topic we've been thinking quite deeply about. We spoke to our US colleague, Carolina Toth, who has been leading this project. We started by asking her to give us a brief overview of the project and her role. So I am the principal advisor for city governments in BIT North America. And so that means I lead our portfolio of work with cities, both funded by philanthropic organizations and, you know, direct contracting. And the work that we did was to design and test evidence-based messages that mayors um, and other local leaders like mayors could use to help uh, encourage uptake of the COVID-19 vaccines, um, increase people's confidence in them and their willingness to get them. Great. And can you tell us more about how this work came about and particularly why you're working with mayors and cities? Without getting overly political, the the project (laughs) began during the Trump administration and the federal government was providing absolutely no support to cities and states and counties. So there's a lot of complexity in the U.S. around the different levels of local government. Counties have a very poor communication channel to the public, and yet many of them have the health department. So a lot of, some cities have the health department, some, some do, some don't. A lot of places, it's the county. The county is not used to communicating with people. And frequently, the mayor is a more trusted messenger. And the guidance that people need to be getting about vaccines is, you know, varies locality, county, state. You know, I I spoke with one city who sits on the border between two states and four counties. And so who can communicate clearly about this vaccine? It's really just the mayor in many cases. So we were thinking about, well, I was thinking about supporting mayors because I always support mayors. But um, the reason why it's important to give mayors 
you know, messages that they can send is that there's a lot of noise. There was, especially under the Trump administration, there was a lot of noise, confusion, multiple messages being said, people not being sure where to turn to, people hearing confusing things from a county health department that they've never interacted with and probably never will again. And so it, it seemed important to find somebody who could, you know, make use of a messenger who could kind of make sense of all that chaos. And for those of us outside of the United States, can you give us a sense firstly of the overall um, picture of the pandemic across the US, but also the diversity of how different states and cities are, are feeling the impact of it? So this work was actually research that we did at a national level mm. um, and intended to be as relevant to as broad an audience of mayors as possible. Um, and so... At, you know, and mayors and local leaders. I think the messages that we we tested were primarily for non-health professionals to use, and so we did not focus on any particular cities. It was it was intended to be useful for as many mayors as, as possible um, mm-hmm. because they were all finding themselves in this situation of limited support from the CDC, limited support from the federal government, sometimes being at odds with what their governor is saying in their state. Some governors were more helpful than others in terms of encouraging um, vaccine uptake. And so we aimed to cast a a wide net in the work. Um, To your question about how the pandemic is playing out, I think less and less so now, but each state was pursuing their own strategy and competing with one another and it sometimes sabotaging one another um, in terms of vaccine supply. And in terms of distribution, again, states have different guidelines. Sometimes counties have different guidelines. Sometimes the city weighs in and, and tries to influence those guidelines depending on where you are and what's happening. So the experience of getting your vaccine is completely different city to city, locality to locality. And the way that the phased rollout is different. I think most places have done older people first. I think that was pretty universal. But then do essential workers get it next? Who is an essential an essential worker? What about comorbidities? Um, my mother lives in the state of Georgia and comorbidities were not a thing there. Um, so it's, you know, it can be widely variable. I will say that um, as, as usual, um, with the American healthcare system, there are racial equity disparities in terms of how the rollout has progressed and also income inequality disparities, uh, et cetera. So it sounds like you're working with really diverse stakeholders here. Do you see some of the work that you're doing as as a mechanism to create some cohesion and and a way to bring these things together? Or are you taking a a city-by-city approach? I think it would be wonderful if if we were able to create a little bit of more consistency and cohesion, at least around what works, to to encourage uptake. I think most, you know, all the cities that we work with do want that. I think everybody wants that. It's just how, how do I go about it? <laughs> Creating more cohesion um, is a tall order and I don't think achievable in our lifetimes. <laughs> but I think by pointing out what works, um, by making it grounded in evidence and data, you can appeal to a lot of people. So you touched on this a little bit, Carolina. Could you expand a bit more on how different groups or different locales are experiencing the pandemic and the vaccine rollout and whether or not you incorporated these differences into your trial? It was a mixed methods project. It started out with kind of a prototyping trial to understand 
different strategies that were going to work. And that was sort of with a small sample. And we cast a broad net because it wasn't at all obvious how to best address you know, feelings of vaccine hesitancy in this unprecedented context. So we started out with something that was a little bit more broad-based, and then we went into focus groups, nine total groups in English, and half of those were African-American, the other half, you know, some proportion were Latinx, and then I think we had one group of low-income white and one group of Republicans and independents, actually, because they are more vaccine hesitant than Democrats um, in the United States. And so we brought the messages to them and we said, what do you think of this? How does this make you feel? How are you reacting? And I think that that was a very, really important process to make sure that we were addressing the populations who needed to hear it most. Um, people have justifiable medical mistrust because they've been participating in a system that's unfair to them. And so figuring out ways to say, I know that you don't trust me, but you know, this is really going to help you. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, Black people in the United States have almost like a 2x mortality rate. These are communities that really, really need the vaccine because they're dying at a disproportionate rate. And so how can we make sure that what we're saying is not tailored to the audience of people who are going to get the vaccine anyway, or who are going to have less bad outcomes anyway, but really the people who really need it. And so um, after that focus grouping process, We then made sure that we had a really large sample for the full trial. Um, We had a sample of 20,000 participants in English, only 2,000 in Spanish. But out of that 20,000, we made sure that we would get a large sample of African-Americans, a large sample of Latinx uh, women, anybody else hesitant, um, Republicans, et cetera, um, to be able to see is not just as my message working in aggregate in general, but is my message working for the people who really need to hear it. And I think that was very important. What kind of behavioral insights did you use to develop these messages? When people think about vaccines, they tend to overweight the risk of side effects um, and the near-term implication of, I'm going to get this shot in my arm, it's going to hurt, maybe I'm going to have a bad reaction to it. They tend to overweight that thing more near-term and they underweight the risk of COVID actually in that moment. So we you know, thought about one strategy, emphasizing the risk to others, emphasizing the risk to self to just make those things a little bit more salient um, when you're thinking about your vaccine than the, you know, the potential downsides of getting the vaccine. That was one strategy that we thought about. Another one was thinking about the, uh, we tried a message that was more grounded on collective identity um, of your city. So like, let's get our city back. We actually dropped that after the prototyping and and when we took it to focus groups, because the reaction of the focus groups, uh, in particular, the African-American focus groups, the reaction was a little bit like, what's my city done for me? Like, why should I care about this collective identity? Um, you know, it's the wrong collective identity to evoke. Um, and again, that is completely justifiable. What has their city done for them lately? Have they been the last ones to receive the rollout? Like, you know, have they, is there a hospital in their area? Do they have health insurance? Like, it's it's a very fair sentiment. And I think one of the reasons why it's really important to actually talk to the people who are most impacted. Um, so, cause we were like, yeah, it's your mayor saying it, collective identity, why not? You know, and that was not the right judgment call. So we ended up dropping that one um, and instead pivoted it more toward this idea of, of people getting their lives back, which was something that came up again, across all focus groups as a really powerful motivation to get vaccinated. Things that we heard in the focus groups was like, oh, the vaccine is the light at the end of the tunnel. Like, I don't really want to get it, but this is the representation of hope. (laughs) And so, you know, just emphasizing that point and kind of encouraging that positive emotion um, in association with the vaccine. Great. So 
you you ran quite a large scale trial here, twenty thousand people, and you've tested three different messages: uh, risk to others, collective identity, and invoking this sense that this is a route for people to get their lives back. Which of these was the most effective? So the final four, there was one um, about, yeah, the risk to others, one helping loved ones is what we ended up calling it. And that one was your loved ones need you get the COVID-19 vaccine to make sure you can be there for them, which is also a kind of like an interesting twist on risk to others because it's, it's also about risk to yourself. Because at that point in time, it wasn't clear what the vaccine was going to do for transmission. So we had to be sort of careful in constructing it, not to overpromise that you were not going to give COVID to your family if you got it, if you got the vaccine. So that was the first one, a little bit mix of risk to others and risk to self. The second was um, approved by healthcare workers. So invoking the healthcare worker as a messenger, even though you as the mayor or you as the local leader are not a healthcare worker, you can still appeal to their authority and they are the most trusted messenger on the topic of vaccines. So there was one that was more doctors and nurses have decided to get their vaccine. Now they recommend you do too. Talk to your doctor to find out about more why it's right for you. The third one was that getting lives back one that I mentioned that sort of had morphed from the collective identity one. And then the final one was um, tested by thousands, which was one that invokes the, the social norm. You know, the COVID-19 vaccine was tested with over 70,000 people, which refers to the clinical trials. Now more than X million people have gotten it. And that number obviously grows. <laughs> um, uh, when it's turned, you can feel confident that it's safe and effective. It was a social norms one, but also a little bit in response to what we heard in the focus groups about like, I don't want to be the first. I don't want to go first. I don't want to be the guinea pig. I don't want anybody to be experimenting on me. Um, and so emphasizing that you are not the first one. <laughs> Uh, so many, so many people have gone before you, um, you can kind of trust in their experience. So th those were the four. All four performed similarly, three to four percentage point increase in both vaccine confidence uh, and willingness to vaccinate. So, Carolina, you mentioned that this project started under the Trump administration. The Biden administration is now well underway. Um, can I just ask you to imagine that you had an audience with President Biden? How would you summarize what you've learned in dealing with all of these different patchwork city administrations um, trying to do their best to roll out the vaccine? And what would be your top recommendations for President Biden? The most important thing um, is, and that that I think that the new administration is doing a good job of, is just getting the supply out. Mm -hmm. the distribution and thinking about equitable distribution. Um, I think the FEMA has been opening these large centers and, you know, the federal government has been stepping up in a way to make sure that the vaccine actually gets to people and in ways that people can access it. And I think that's the most important thing um, and had been the biggest blockage uh, in terms of cities. I mean, in terms of states sabotaging one another and, um, you know, just some incoherence there. So, I think that's the most important thing. And that's something that I think we've all observed. Um, with regard to though this research, I think the most important things that I would have said to him at the time is that hesitancy is higher among the people who are dying the most. And we need to address that. You know, the, that, um, you know, black communities are more hesitant than white communities right now. And that is not good for them because they're also dying at disproportionate rates. And so we need to focus on um, elevating healthcare messengers of color to say um, that 
this vaccine is important and it's safe and it's effective. And then we also need to be focusing on this tens of thousands of people who've gone before you. Um, it's okay. Your justifiable medical mistrust, um, you know, try to put it aside for this moment because you need this vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would be the second thing, you know, I, I mentioned that the demographics have shifted, but I think that would have been the second thing I would have said. And then the third one is, is more perhaps around, this patchwork that you mentioned, there's such a diversity of approaches. Everybody's going about it differently. Can somebody please look at that and Mm. decide and make sense of this natural experiment that has been transpiring and say very clearly and loudly, the way that X city is doing it is working um, because mayors and I'm sure counties are eager to hear that kind of thing. They Mm. love to know what their peers are doing that's working um, and to have and do things in a data and evidence-based way. Um, So to have somebody behind the scenes who pulls together all of that complexity of data across, you know, hundreds and thousands of jurisdictions and, and kind of elevates the winners of that natural experimentation so that others can follow. Can you tell us what's next for the project and are there further things you want to test or do you think it's um, there's opportunities to implement this across these insights across different cities? Yeah, I mean, we're quite interested to sort of do some variation or, or repetition. The profile of who continues to be vaccine hesitant in the U.S. is definitely shifting. I mentioned that people didn't want to be the guinea pig and go first. Well, now they're not, right? Millions of people have gotten it and they many people are seeing their family and friends get it. Um, you know, nurses have seen the doctors get it. <laughs> And also, from my sort of idle Instagram perusing, it seems that a lot of celebrities have been posting about yes. getting it as well. Uh, what, exactly. What's your sense of um, how effective that is, and uh, whether you know whether mayors and um, and healthcare providers should be tapping into that in a more deliberate way? Yeah. So one one thing we we heard um, and and saw also in our survey data is that people don't really want to get a recommendation. They don't want to be told to get their vaccine by their mayor or their mm. local leader or really anybody who's not their doctor. They don't want to be told to do it. They want to be shown that it is safe and effective by people leading by example. So even among focus group participants who are like, what have my city done for me lately? They were like, the mayor should get it first. And then, then you know, that'd be something. Then maybe I could think about getting it. Back in Australia, the, the prime minister offered to get it first. And then there was quite a backlash with people saying he shouldn't jump the queue. I think that there's a way to do it. And we talked about this actually with um, comms directors and and mayors of, we're opening up a new site. I'm so excited for this new site. Let me show you how safe and effective it is. Here's the little cam. Here's how we go in. Here's the shot of my arm. You know, because some of these sites also, uh, you know, are weird. You know, you're in a stadium. FEMA has set up a random tent somewhere, you know, um, and so using that as like a role modeling moment, like do not definitely don't do it in the moment where there's extreme vaccine scarcity. Like, you know, what is your example doing? It's showing that you're jumping the queue. Do it as a symbolic moment of like the floodgates are opening. This place is yeah. going to be awesome. It's about the time and the place and um, and the moment, you know, if you're in a period of extreme scarcity, that's obviously the wrong time. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. There was another part to your question that I forgot, but I was excited about it. Oh, yeah. What we're going to do next. Yes. What are you going to do next? So we don't have any concrete plans with the project, but what we would like to do is understand, you know, the profile of who's hesitant is changing. So there was a recent poll that said maybe Republican men are the are the largest group of people who don't want to get vaccinated. And so that's super different to what it was in um, 
in January when we did our big, big, you know, big survey, 20,000 people, it was that um, black people were more hesitant than white people. Women were more hesitant than men. Republicans were more hesitant than Democrats even then. So the profile is shifting as as the social norm shifts Mm. to people who might be hesitant for more principled reasons or for, you know, reasons other than I don't want to be the first. So um, I think we're quite curious to see what would work what works for those folks. It's probably a heavier lift than a simple message that your mayor tweets out, you know? Uh, So what are the types of interventions that can shift somebody like that's behavior, who's a little bit more dug in um, Mm -hmm. for various reasons. Um, And then I think that there's also still a lot of practical barriers. Um, So the fact people might not be hesitant, but they just can't get to it because of the structural reasons that I mentioned. So we're, thinking about working with a couple of cities on more on those practical barriers, low cost ways to kind of get people to their site um, and making it clear that they're eligible and now's the time and, and here's mm-hmm. how. So I think that's kind of what we hope is next. After doing this, this large scale trial, what are your learnings and insights for how to tackle this issue of vaccine hesitancy? There's a difference between anti-vaxxers um, who are extremely, you know, pretty, as I, as I just alluded to, ground in, definitely against it, have a lot of thoughts about it. And the current moment, which is more like, I, I don't want to be the first, this is a brand new vaccine. Like, you know, they discovered something about AstraZeneca with a blood clot. Let me just wait and see how this plays out. Um, and I think that is a little bit more of the camp that we're in right now. The, I think the things that we learned were, um, People are motivated by helping their family. People are motivated by the idea of getting their lives back. And people don't want to go first. They want to be told that thousands and millions and millions of people have gone before them and and that they want to hear from healthcare workers. They don't want to be told by you random leader that they need to get this shot in their arm. They want to be told by a doctor and they want you to lead by example. Carolina, what, what I really love about what you've done in this project is that we we talk a lot about generating evidence about what works to shift behaviour. But what you've done here is really dig into not just what works, but what works for whom in what context. And I think that's really powerful. Um, and I hope that the insights you've generated here continue to have a positive impact on vaccine uptake in the US and also that they can be applied around the world. So thank you so much for joining us on Inside the Nudge Unit. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Really amazing work by BIT North America there. As Carolina says, a lot of people had reservations from prior mistrust of the public health system to concerns about the unprecedented speed of vaccine development. It's been a really impactful project for BIT and one that has insights that can be applied to other parts of the world particularly in countries that aren't as far advanced in their COVID vaccination programs and for future vaccination programs around the world. In 2019, over 50 million tonnes of electronic waste was produced globally, and more than 80% of that waste was not handled properly. And what we're seeing is governments around the world starting to make more sustainable consumption a policy priority. In France, as part of efforts to promote a more circular economy, the government has launched a flagship program to encourage consumers to repair rather than replace their consumer goods, particularly their electronic goods. But as all of our listeners know, thoughtful policy design is needed to change consumer behaviour. 
And with that in mind, today we're joined by two of our European colleagues, Laura Litvain and Violette Gaden. Laura and Violette are from BIT's new France office, opened late last year. And they've both been working with the French Ministry of the Environment on how to communicate the government's new repairability index labels and how to make them as effective as possible. As you're listening to this, if you want to see an example of the labels, you can have a look at our podcast page. Welcome to you both, or should I say bienvenue with my terrible French. Um, why don't we kick off with some introductions? Violette, can you introduce yourself and your role at BIT? Thanks, Liz, or should I say merci. Uh, I'm Violette. I work across Bit France and Bit UK at the moment. I'm an associate research advisor. Um, what that means is I specialize in qualitative research here at Bit. Fantastic. Laura, can you tell us about Bit France and give us more of an overview of the work that we're discussing today? You, you started this podcast by you know, telling us about the problem of um, electronic waste and, and how terrible it is for the environment. But in this outfit, what the government was working on, this, this big law to encourage a more circular economy, as part of this was, was launching into an attempt to can't calculate and display an index that would tell consumers how repairable a product is. And I'm, I, I suppose, I suspect when, where we came in is we were asked to work on how to best display and communicate this index for increased comprehension, retention, but also to see how it can affect consumer behavior. Um, because we know from a long literature that the way you're going to actually show a piece of information is going to change drastically the way it's going to be perceived and the way it's going to be acted on by, by consumers, but people also more generally. And for our listeners, can you give them a sense of how they would experience the index? Is it something they'd see um, when they're buying a new product? Yes, absolutely. So the idea when we started this project was that uh, a law was going to be written and was going to come into place defining how it was going to be displayed. And so that's also what we got to, to think about with the government, which was very exciting. And so concretely, it actually shows on the label. So you go into a shop and the label where it has the price, the information, all the specifications of this product, um, and you will also see the repairability index. The same way you can see it, probably the closest example to help you relate would be the European tag to on energy efficiency of a washing machine, and you would see this kind of A+, A++, etc. So it's not a rating system, it's uh, it's an index in the sense that there's a formula that allows it to get, to get calculated. So, it has, so it's, a, it's a score on 10 that's calculated with five elements, uh, the elements being how impossible it is to dismount, uh, how the availability of documentation, the availability of parts, and also importantly, the price of parts, which is affordability, is, has been a big part of the debates around the repairability index and how it could be built. And so the score on 10 is displayed on a series of electric and electronic products. Uh, it started with a seed, the, the pilots that we were involved in. Uh, we worked on laptops, but it also has been calculated for uh, TVs, fridges, and lawnmowers. So all sorts of electrics and electronic products that, uh, that have been, you know, very responsible of a large part of waste and smartphones as well, which is an important one. So longtime followers of BIT will know that some of the earliest projects we did in the UK were around energy efficiency labels on white goods. And we particularly collaborated with a large department store um, here in the UK. I think the repairability index is a really interesting and innovative extension of a lot of that energy efficiency labeling work. Laura, can you tell us how Bit France 
uh, which, you know, was relatively new at the time when you did this project, how you came to work with the French government on how to display and communicate this new index. Sure, absolutely. So this is actually thanks to our collaboration with the, the central government's behavioural sciences team because they, they ran this exercise, which was a very exciting policy experiment, which was calling all central administration uh, in France to, to apply for support in how to apply behavioural sciences to public policy. And so they received, I think, between 35 and 40 applications from different ministries, different agencies, uh, looking for support. And so the Ministry of Environment actually applied for support on how to apply behavioral sciences, which is very exciting if you think about it, because they themselves had perceived that behavioral sciences could do something for this index. And so we, par- in parallel, uh, started working as a, as a supplier, if you want, as a, as a partner to the DITP uh, on this project. Laura or VLS, both of you. This might be a bit of an obvious question, but for our listeners who don't know, could you define repairability and maybe explain a bit more what role it plays in sustainable consumption and the circular economy? So repairability, in in a nutshell, it's, it's a very simple concept. It's broadly about how easy and affordable it is to repair a product. Um, so when you think about, for example, a smartphone and how repairable that is, You'll look into things like how easy it is to disassemble the phone um, and how easy replacement parts are to find, for example. But affordability also comes into account. So things like um, how expensive it is to repair the product. So it makes sense for consumers to repair rather than uh, buy new. And what kind of impact does repairability have? Uh, so, you know, the, the French government is thinking about this, I assume, from a climate change and sustainability perspective. How does it fit within the the wider strategy to reduce emissions and increase sustainable consumption? Sure, yeah. I mean, I might might give an example here. So just to highlight the potential impact. So if we look at smartphones in particular, again, they currently have about, I think, a two-year average life cycle, which makes them fairly disposable, I'd say. So research estimates that the smartphones that are being replaced, around 90% of them are still in working order. Um, so it does seem like people are, are upgrading rather than buying something new because they they need it. The problem there is that, that building a new smartphone represents most of the carbon footprint for the smartphones because in part of, for example, the rare materials you need to mine and things like that. Um, so keeping your smartphone for even just a year longer could have a really considerable impact on your carbon footprint. So that just thinking about things that are repairable and actually going ahead and repairing them that would make a big impact on, on obviously our carbon footprint as a, as a group. One of the things that's interesting about the index is that uh, as it grows in, in application, you'll be able to actually directly compare absolutely every product on the market. And that's the ambition. Through the work we did, we worked mostly on, on smartphones and laptops. We did our testing on laptops, but also got to look at smartphones. And you'll find that in general, things that are Thinner, lighter, more design heavy will will tend to be less repairable. Um, and so this will be famously tablets that are less repairable or those uh, laptops that are crossed between laptops and tablets tend to be less repairable. Uh, I think like for typically, you know, a MacBook Air will be less repairable than uh, a laptop that has more components that you can uh, undo. Also, Famous, and this is something that we had to learn a lot about the, the gaming uh, type of industry. These are typically very, very repairable because being able to disassemble is something that gamers tend to appreciate. And so uh, Apple and Samsung being probably consistently towards the, the lower end of the repairability spectrum. 
So is the idea kind of behind this index to change consumer behavior enough so actually that the brands end up changing their behaviors and how they operate? Um, yes, absolutely. And, and the idea is, is an idea that's very close to BIT's heart is, is basically, you know, what you could think about as reformulation is, is if consumers vote with their feet and show more appreciation, more interest, uh, tend to, tend to buy more repairable products and so they care about this feature. You'd expect brands to, to start and move, uh, more towards repairable products to, to, and, or at least to try and cater to, to this type of, more ecologically friendly discourse. Um, and so this is, this is very much the hope. And this is something that we also saw with the energy efficiency labels that we talked about a little earlier. We've seen typically, you know, in, in, in the, what they call the, the big, uh, big appliances, or we've seen washing machines, you know, change drastically. And so this is, this has been a bit of a debate at the European level. Typically now, if you go into a store and you look at the washing machines, you'll see that all of them are triple A's or A plus plus plus. And, and so there's now been, uh, and that's, that's an interesting thing because all, all the manufacturers started changing the way they build the products. And now as a result, the label is going to have to change to basically recreate a distribution of indices again to try and push the production and the industry towards something even more, you know, environmentally friendly. What kind of insights from behavioral science did you use to try make this repairability index as effective as possible? So we looked at the, the consumer journey of purchasing a, a laptop and we found a couple of things which were particularly relevant for us as we were thinking about how to display this. For an average consumer like myself, um, it's really hard to gauge exactly what makes something more or less repairable. So the understanding of what comes behind that that concept isn't, isn't necessarily always there. And we also found that consumers don't always see the advantage to them of making a repairable purchase. So they might think instead of things like how hard or how expensive it is um, to repair a laptop and not necessarily consider the longer term savings, which is a common behavior, um, human behavior, right? We tend to focus on, I guess, more the present costs and the benefits of um, our actions. And so our challenge there was, wasn't around how to explain everything about the repairability index. It was really around how to present it to consumers so that it's just taken into account and it has that impact. So we partnered with Fnac Darty. They're one of France's largest retailer of electronics. And they already had a repairability, repairability index and were really engaged with the idea of testing out different displays for it, which was great. And so we did some research with them, um, just testing a few new displays for the index and iterating as we go to make sure that we draw on, I guess, what we saw as two key insights from behavioral sciences there. And the first one, and, and I guess that's the main role of an index, right, is making it immediately clear what to take away from it. So whether the score itself is good or bad, but also making it easy for people to compare between laptops. So not just knowing the score, but also knowing whether it's better or worse than, than the laptop next to it. And the second insight, and that was based on some of the findings that we had already, was that we wanted to highlight the benefits to the consumers so that it was clearer to them why repairability was a good thing um, for them personally. So things like you know, the durability of products and the potential savings for them in the long term. What was really interesting here is, is our, because of our collaboration with Fnac Darty, we really were able to do a very robust trial. So we run a randomized control trial with over 140,000 customers, which is huge. And it's one of the, the largest field trials to date in the space. 
And in terms of, of result, actually, to be honest, we didn't see an impact. Once a consumer saw a repairability score, it didn't mean that they bought a more repairable laptop. But interestingly, our results suggested something else and something that we perhaps hadn't um, considered up front. They appeared to be less likely to make a purchase full stop if they had seen the score. So either they didn't make that purchase or actually they bought a laptop without a score on them. Which, which seems to suggest something interesting about maybe consumers avoiding some bad news around, you know, making a purchase that seems less repairable. That's not really something they want to think about, maybe. And also, obviously, there, there's some limits to, to our design as well, because not all laptops in the, Dati, the FNAC Dati website had repairability scores. We can't quite explain exactly why this finding is there. But it definitely seems to suggest that we shouldn't quite abandon uh, the idea of a repairability score and there's, there's something there um, for us to look into. We started with the idea that the index needed to be understandable, immediately comparable. And, and mm. the first test we did was comparing different designs and different displays. And yeah, we tested, that, we tested that online. So we tested that on, you know, we tested, we, so we started from these insights that Violet told you about, about the importance of making things comparable, immediately able to, to make it this immediate enough so that people would know if something is good or bad, but also if it's better than the computer next to it, the product next to it. And also that people would understand that it relates to this idea of repairability and then link it to the right concepts. And so to do that, we tested several concepts and uh, we have several designs, different ideas, different visuals, different, different texts. The first thing we did, and we were very proud that we were able to do this methodologically, because I think it's quite, it's quite a good step to be able to put into a larger project cycle, and is we tested online these different displays with uh, FNAC Dati's lab, so panel, online panel of consumers. And so we did this, this mini, well, it wasn't that mini actually, we did it with I think something around 6,000 people uh, who we showed our different displays and got them to ask them questions about comprehension, sentiment, very similar to the type of work we do sometimes with Predictive, uh, our, our platform, which I'm sure you'll have introduced your listeners to. Um, or you can this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so we, we tested this online with this panel of consumers to try and see which displays had the highest chance of, of them being successful in the field, as we say, uh, but at the, at the, the highest chance of being successful in, in real conditions. And that allowed us to basically narrow down on these two displays that we then tested live the branch and traffic light system that uh, Violet told you about earlier, and another display that we called a called it the wheel, uh, mm-hmm. but it basically looked like a little bit like the the speed gauge in a car, and with a similar color gradient and, and the score bang in the middle, uh, and with the same the same sentence that said you know for a durable choice make a repairable purchase, and so so we tested those then in real life and did a series of qualitative interviews to see what people thought about it, whether they'd seen it. And so this is where, you know, the, the fact that not all products in, in an aisle, because concretely we're in a shop, so not all products in an aisle had a score, was a real impediment in the sense that, you know, you didn't get to this, this full comparison. But we also did it online, and online we then got to, to this very, very large sample, which was very, we were very happy because in the space of, uh, you know, environmental displays, environmental dis- uh, labels, very often people have to stop at lab studies and, and the ability to do it in real conditions in the field was, was a, you know, really, really exceptional for, for this project and, and really a testament to the collaborations that existed between the DITP, the Ministry of Environment and, and then retailers 
Um, this is you really want to have all these people in the room to be able to bring these projects to life. And so then, you know, doing this test uh, online and in real life, this is where we realized, this is where we got to see how consumers actually react to it. To kind of put this all in a nutshell, we first tested a bunch of designs. We had six different ones, selected the two that we thought were most likely to be successful and selected the one sentence, the one logo to go around, the one catchphrase to go around it through this online testing, launched that, and then got to see that, so what Violet was describing, which is that on one hand, we didn't see out of the people who bought a laptop, we didn't see any significant change in how repairable that laptop was, but we did see that people tended to buy fewer laptops when they'd seen, uh, when they'd seen the display of the label, of the, of the repairability index. And so this is, this is a really, really, you know, it's not, uh, it's obviously a first step in seeing how this, this repairability index is going to evolve in real life when it then applies to, to a whole series of products. Um, but it's very encouraging in the sense that what it means and how we interpret it is, is consumers took a stop and thought about what they were doing. And so we see a shift in, in consumer behavior. That's a very encouraging one. Violet, can you tell us about the implementation of the trial? So casting my mind back to the, the energy efficiency label work we did in the UK, we had t- members of the team out in department stores taking photos of washing machines um, to see if the labels were, were being displayed correctly. This is the glamorous side of working at BIT. Um, <laughs> can you tell us about how you did that in this particular trial? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can relate to that. So obviously our, our trial had sort of an online and an install component. And so for the install component, we went and did a bit more of a qualitative study there. And yeah, so we were we were walking around amongst laptops and checking repairability scores, whether they were st- stuck on at the right place or not, um, and whether we thought that would affect, you know, people's perceptions of it. Um, and also, actually, we we used that time to ask questions of customers, which was which was really really interesting. Um, and that's where we got some of the more the more colourful, the more um, qualitative, I guess, findings there. So just trying to make sure that we understood why people were considering or not considering the repairability score, what it meant to them, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And did people tell you surprising things? I mean, we we had. I think that's where we we at least got a lot of understanding of how people actually avoid the repairability score. Um, and so in store as well as on online, um, not all the laptops had a repairability score on them. And so we did see that behavior sort of in, in store of people just looking at it. And if particularly if it was a, a you know, a red score, so a negative score, they'd just move on to something else. Um, and that's perhaps something that's interesting for us to to think about as well is a lot of the scores were quite negative. Um, So a lot of the scores were basically quite red or on, on more of the, the poorer score side of things. And so even if people wanted to make a choice based on repairability there, it didn't seem like they had that much choice of good repairable products, which, which was interesting there. Are there plans afoot to extend the index so that it is on all products? And, and what are the timelines for that? Very happy to report that those are not plans. They're real. Oh, amazing. Um, <laughs> the, this is the really, really exciting part about this project and why we're, we're so proud to, to come and talk to you all about it is, is it's, it's really kind of what you would want a project to be. Um, and so, so while only a series of laptops had seen, uh, had had an index calculated for them, 
when we did the trial. And that's, again, thanks to the partnership that we had with, with FNAC-Darty, because basically the way it worked in the beginning is, is the experts at FNAC-Darty were calculating the index as part of all the technical tests and, and assessments and evaluations they do on the products. And so they were calculating it. But this was all in the context where the government was uh, designing, negotiating, and, and writing up the law on on circular economy that uh, became law in in 2020. And since Jan- January 2021, all manufacturers uh, it is compulsory for all manufacturers to calculate themselves and display the the repairability index on the products that they sell. And so now. You know, there is a grace period during which it's going to be rolled out. But now if you go into a French shop, if you go online, you will see the repairability index uh, for a lot of products. And and it's also, it's, it's, and so this is the part that's extremely exciting is because we were asked to work on this exactly at the right time, uh, in my opinion, in the sense that the repairability index was being built. There were those, those groups that were thinking about how to design the law existing. We were brought in the, the room, brought in the conversation with the DITP. And we finished a project just at the time where they were finalizing the, the text of the law and then could then, you know, we were, we were here and gave them arguments to defend the fact that it needed to be compulsory and gave them arguments to defend the fact that there needed to be a particular type of, of communications to, to educate the, the wider public about what repairability is. And so, so this is, so this is really kind of a success story in terms of a project. What are your early hunches as to how this index might change um, the behaviour of manufacturers of electronic goods and motivate them to uh, design, develop and sell more sustainable products? So this is obviously a bit anecdotal, what I'm going to tell you, because it's more, it's more of a hunch. As you say. I mean, it's more than a hunch because it's, it's, it's the result of, of conversations we've had and things we've seen happen in the background during this, during this project, but also because, you know, this project was just, one aspect of many, many aspects of what it meant to actually design the index, get everyone to agree to it, get everyone to agree to like how where it was going to be displayed, where it was going to look like. So we were just one tiny part of this this big machine that it is to 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 launch something like this and, and make that the law. But we saw in the negotiations we heard about certain manufacturers being very, very actively lobbying for certain things to not enter the index or uh, very and already being questioning the way the index was calculated for their specific products, uh, and we've and that's very interesting. And we've seen them think about think specifically about the elements of the index and say, okay, well, so this is how I get a better a better score here. And so the scores already we've seen when you see this active uh, level of lobbying, you you know that people care about this potential this potential score, and that's been very encouraging. So, Laura, to wrap up, can you tell us what's next for Bit France? Oh, what's next for Bit France? So, Bit France, you said it is is a very is a very new outfit. Uh, we are coming to a first year of activity very soon, but there's a lot of exciting things in the pipeline. A lot through this partnership with central government and with the DITP, which uh, we're we're working on a series of things. So, a lot of work on employment right now around uh, and and quite you know the. the the situation on unemployment in France is quite critical. And so we're doing some really exciting work around uh, helping disabled job seekers uh, improve their access to the labour market, improve access to uh, young people who are not in employment, education or training, access to the job market, but also be more actors of their own journey to the market. And I think this is something that we're seeing in France that's 
an interesting trend is a lot of projects around helping people more autonomously take charge of, pro- of, of access to public services, access to, to, to subsidies, etc. And so that's very interesting work. We're also doing quite a bit of work on simplification of public services, which is a big agenda uh, in France. And so how do you make sure that people can access all those services that they're, they're entitled to, those things that, they, that can help them? And how do you make sure that it's as, as simple, as accessible as possible? But we're, to end on a, on a note related to repairability, we're also very, very excited about all the possibilities that exist in, in the environmental agenda in France. And I was, I was just talking about the, this climate and resilience law, it's called, that uh, is just coming out. It includes a lot of very interesting things where we think behavioral sciences can, can have a, an interesting contribution around food choices, uh, you know, towards uh, a more plant-based diet or, you know, making uh, housing more energy efficient and also obviously something that's very dear to BIT's heart, choices of transportation, lots of support for, for green cars, electric cars, electric modes of transport, but also what we called here soft mobility, which is, uh, you know, encouraging people to cycle, walk. Uh, and so so that's, that's a big agenda for us. And I should have also said that we do a lot of projects on health. Um, I don't know if we'll fit them in there, but uh, a big, a big part of our work, and especially facing the crisis, has been working with the different health health agencies, so health ministry, but also uh, regional health agencies around. We we've done relatively little work on COVID, but we've done work that's exciting around, you know, encouraging uh, healthcare workers to get vaccinated uh, against the flu. But I think a lot of lessons can be extrapolated and generalized to to other things. Um, and we are now doing work on the distant trace system. Fantastic. Look, it's an ambitious and exciting agenda and we're looking forward to hearing more about it as, as your work develops. Thanks so much for joining us here. and we, uh, we can't wait to see what Bit France does next. Sounds like there's a lot in the pipeline. So yeah, thanks a million for being on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks both. So that's the end of episode seven of Inside the Nudge Unit. We really hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please subscribe to our podcast, tell your friends about it, and give us a rating on your preferred podcast platform. There's more information on the topics covered in this episode in the podcast notes, or you can visit our website at www.bi.team. There you can also find lots more information on the first 10 years of the Behavioral Insights team. That's at bi.team forward slash bit10. If you want to get in touch about running behavior change projects in your own organization, send us an email at info at bi.team. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you return for more Inside the Nudge Unit podcast soon.